Hello, welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts, Jordana Asman, here with my friend, Chabruta Ann Gordon. Our daf today, Masech Nedarim, daf Yudchet, page 18. So as we discussed yesterday, there's a rather lengthy discussion about Rav Huna's understanding of our Mishnah. And the beginning of this daf basically continues with a challenging uh, Rav Huna. It's interesting that as many challenges as they bring for Rav Huna, the Gemara sort of figures out a way to uh, explain Rav Huna in each one. Um, and even this last one that they do, it's Mati Rav Hamnuna. Rav Hamnuna challenges him and he really, uh, he, it's, it's rather lengthy what he does. Uh, you know, the Gemara still feels that it can sort of explain this challenge. Uh, so just pay a little bit of attention to, you know, I, this is, I think, a great example of like what makes Gemara learning special. Like, no idea is too silly for them to entertain. And even though we sort of see challenge after challenge, they're willing to sort of go through the validity of each challenge, but also to really defend Rav Huna's opinion. Like the answer isn't, well, you brought too many challenges. It must be that it's not a good opinion. Um, it's actually the opposite. It's like, no, Rav Huna said this. We're going to take this interpretation actually very, very seriously. So just pay um, a little bit of attention uh pay attention to that. Um, and then to basically wrap up the Mishnah, there's just a little bit more Gemara here, and I'll just do a, a little section of it here. The Gemara asked the following question. There was a Brisa that we had before that talked about that, um, you know, well, this Brisa that we just talked about that said that Niz- Nizirut is basically a type of Nadar, right? And Shvuot are actually more stringent than Nadarim in general. So then the Gemara asked, What's more stringent about a shvuah than a nadir? So they give one example, which we already learned before, which is you could say that a shvuah, right, can be on something that she'en bobamash. That's something that lacks substance, whereas a nadir can only be on something that's mamash. So I'll answer that. Nadir nami chamor, right? A nadir also can be more stringent than an oath. Why? Because a nether can take effect on objects that are needed for the fulfillment of a mitzvah. And it also, can, just as it also can take place on objects that sort of you uh, can just, you know, just things that you sort of use, something that doesn't necessarily uh, have to do with a, uh, with an actual uh, mitzvah with a mitzvah itself. I'm right. So what I think they're talking about here is, is that uh, you can have a neder, right? We talked about that a neder, uh, you know, can involve some things that are around mitzvahs, about lulav, about sukkah, about things like that, whereas a shvua cannot violate an actual commandment in the Torah itself. And so maybe that's a way that a neder is actually more machmir uh, than a shvua. It's, it's more strict. And so then the Gemara responds and says, So what the Brisa is saying when it says that oaths are actually more stringent than Nizarim, it's because with an oath, it's written, and here they quote a Pasuk, a Shemot chapter 20, verse 7, where it says, uh, that Hashem will not absolve, basically Hashem will not absolve anybody who takes Hashem's name in vain. Now this is going to be explained more in the Gemara in Shvuyot, right? that other things that a person transgresses in the Torah, they basically become forgiven when we do tshuva. 
But this, based on this pasuk, there's sort of in a way there's no chuba. There's no way to absolve actually this sin. The sin of swearing falsely uh, just sort of doesn't actually have a resolution, okay? Whereas the sin of not fulfilling a neder, right, is 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 rectified differently. You bring a korban, you do something a little bit uh, different. So it's interesting to see that that's a little bit of a piece of a, a, a shvua that's a, that's different uh, than a uh, you know than a neder itself. And I thought that was an important piece to, for us to focus on as we continue our learning here to sort of see what the difference is, is between a shvua and what's the difference between a neder that oats and and vows, you know, really have very, very different purposes. I don't totally have it straight in my head yet why they are really two different things. I think we're still sort of developing what exactly that is. And I actually think we may not fully understand it until we also learn Masakha which is not till many, many Masakha later. Then that's just not fair. No, I mean, I'm kidding. I agree with you. I think that we're getting a getting glimpses of how these things are different and how they have different applications and different uses and different times they would be put into practice. And yet I could not give you like a, you know, um, like those IDs that you had to do on like a high school history test where you have to say like, who, what, where, why, and tell the significance. I, mm, I couldn't yet do most of that for these two. Like I couldn't rate it up that separately as individual things. I'm hoping that by the end, if not by the end of Nadar and then by the end of Shavuot, I, well, I would we hope need we a chart, and we're not getting a chart. So, you know, I, I'm yeah. hoping we'll be able to develop a framework soon. Maybe Wikipedia has a chart. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I want to learn it from the DAF. Chart somewhere. I'm going to have to Right, but it. I want to learn it from the DAF and then make our right. own chart. Okay. Um, the Mishnah on Amabet here is very long. It's not even that it's so many words. It's just as compared to the DAF itself, it takes up really the most, nearly the entirety of Amabet. Excuse me. Stam nedarim lachmir, meaning if you have a neder that is not specific, it doesn't have the details of the time boundness or that kind of thing, right? Then you're going to treat it stringently. We treat it stringently, meaning that the assumption is that the person who takes that neder means that it should happen, right? That it should go into effect, that they're not saying it as a meaningless statement. And this goes back, I think, to the way we spoke at the beginning about how Nowadays, people use language versus how people are using language when they're taking nadarim in the ancient world. Because now, the amount of the number of times a person says, "Oh, I swear," you know, in the course of a day, if they're not being hyper attuned to mesecha nadarim, is is it's substantive, right? Meaning, this is the way people talk nowadays. People say, "I swear to God," without meaning anything by it. Whereas the presumption, certainly the presumption of the rishonim, so that's like medieval commentaries on. The Mishnah and the Gemara, certainly they say <clears throat> nobody is using language flippantly or casually to that degree, to the extent that they'll say, the Mishnah says, as Psak, Stam Nadar We treat it stringently. We assume that the that the netter is going to go into effect. We assume that people are not saying meanings, meaningless things, because how could that ever be? We nowadays could tell them exactly how that could be. However, once a neder's, um, once there is specificity in the neder, then we treat it leniently. What does it mean leniently? Ketzad, amar, hare alai kebasar maliach. Let's say someone says, this item, this item in front of me is going to be, for me, prohibited like salty meat. 
salted meat, I guess, right? Meaning this is food that is asur. Right? Or it's prohibited to me like wine that is used for libations to avodah zarah, to idolatry. So the point here is that if he's talking about, you know, oh, I'm sorry, the last case is if somebody um, says that this, this item before me is prohibited, the same way the wine that is used in the Korban Shlamim, right? This is libations in the Beit Mikdash. Likewise, that would be prohibited, right? Meaning in each of these cases, the item that he's comparing to things that are prohibited to him are, you know, it is indeed take the case that the thing in front of him will then be forbidden in the same way that those things are. So here's an example or or the case where we're going to distinguish between what does it mean for something to be specific and what does it mean for it to be so general or unspecified that we're going to be stringent. Namely, if he says that he's talking about you know, meat or wine or whatever it is of Avodah meaning that this item will be like the salted meat of an offering that goes to an idol, right? Whatever it is, whatever his example is that he's saying, but he means it in the context of Avodah So then the Mishnah here says, Mutar, meaning then the item is permitted because the very fact that you've got this vow, the item that is for the vow is associated with an item that is prohibited by the Torah, so we've talked about this already, right? Like if the Torah prohibits it already, you're not going to come in to take a neder on top of that. It doesn't count. That neder doesn't count. Ve'im stam asur. But if that same person took that same vow or a very close to it vow without that specification, meaning he doesn't say, um, like the salted meat of an idolatrous item, rather just saying, you know, like the salted meat. Right, where the vow is not going to be associated with an item that might be for idolatry, then it's going to be forbidden, meaning the vow kicks in, it takes effect. So, this is, of course, the vocabulary here is counterintuitive because yes means it's prohibited, and no means it didn't work and it's not prohibited. Um, you would think the reverse. The mission goes on, let us say somebody says, This is forbidden to me, <coughs> like an item that was dedicated in the Beta Mikdash. If he really meant to dedicate it, if he really meant that it should be consecrated, then he's prohibited himself it, it from himself. However, if he's saying that it would be like a dedication to the priests, namely that he's like donating his item, as it were, to the Kohanim, then it would be permitted because you're not allowed to make that kind of gift to the Kohanim. So since you are claiming that you're, what you're doing with your item is making a gift of it in, to the Kohanim, which is something that cannot be according to the Torah, then it does not count. The gift The gift is not a gift, and the promise to give the gift is not a promise. However, if he says this, it's forbidden to me, right? Then without that kind of specification, then it works, and it goes into effect that he, in fact, has taken an oath to prohibit himself from it. The, the tricky part here is that sometimes being specific gets you out of something that you didn't want to have to do, let's say, but sometimes not being specific is exactly where you want to be, where you're taking the oath upon yourself. It's, it's the tricky part. I think the real tricky part of this is to my mind is that if you say, if a person says something casually or inadvertently, 
I feel like they're more likely to say it without specificity. And without specificity is where we get machmir, we're going to be stringent. So if I need a reminder to be careful in what I say, right, this is that kind of thing. The whole phenomenon of nadarm kicking in and taking effect when um, when people are not specific, when they are speaking more casually or more generally, like has to wake everybody up to take to pay very careful attention to what they're saying when. And the Mishnah continues because, as I said, it's a long Mishnah. Let's say you say it's forbidden to me, like like the tithings. So again, the question is, how specific is it? If you say this item would be like the animal tithe, it would the vow would kick in, and if he says it's going to be like the tithings of the of the goren, of the threshing floor, the granary, right? Well, that's the green that's given to the to the levim, and it's not kadosh. It's not sanctified to begin with. So then you're not saying anything, right? The the vow does not kick in. There's nothing prohibited in that green. And lastly, if he says it without any specification, then so you don't know if it's like oh, you don't know if it's like levim or something else altogether. It ends up being forbidden. Okay, hare alai ketruma. He says, what if he says I I'm prohibiting this to myself as if it were truma. So again, it's going to depend what what truma does he mean when he says truma, right? If it's to be like the collection of the chamber, right? The truma delishka from the Beta Mikdash, which is basically a tax that covers the, the korbanot, the communal korbanot. Um, so then it's going to be forbidden to him, meaning it worked. The vow took effect. The im But if he's saying it like the truma of the granary, which is given to the koanim, then it's going to be that same green would be permitted, meaning there's no way to... For, truma itself is not forbidden from him by a vow. It doesn't work that way. It's forbidden. If it's forbidden to him, it's forbidden to him from the Torah. If he hasn't specified, then a sword, then the vow does kick in and it's prohibited to him. Dive Rebbe Meir. We have here a name you know, in the Mishnah whose opinion is all of this. Now, Rebbe Meir's opinion is often there silently without his name, but in this case, the next statement in the Mishnah is the Bar Plukta, right? The the person who argues very frequently with Rebbe Mayer in, you know, essentially in his own day, although I don't know if they actually argued face-to-face. Rebbe Huda Omer, what did he say? Stam truma bihuda asura begalil muteret. He has a different calibration for when truma is going to be permitted and when it's going to be prohibited. Rebbe Huda says that in, in Yehuda, in Judea, then if you have unspecified truma, that would be forbidden. But in the Galil, it would be permitted. Because if you live in the Galil, maybe less so nowadays, but certainly back in the day, if you live in the Galil, then you really don't know anything about the Beit HaMikdash to that degree that what you're looking at is the truma of the Lishka. The truma of the Lishka is staying in Jerusalem, right? It doesn't make sense that it would be traveling as far as the Galil, right? Whereas in Judea, in Yehuda, which is the area of the country where the Beit HaMikdash is, well, that's not so crazy. Then you have to be more careful about it. Stam chamim. So again, if you've got unspecified um, um, swearings off, right? Dedications. And this is, again, bihuda mutarin, begalil asurin. In Yehuda, it doesn't work. In the Galil, it does work. She'ein anshe galil makirin et Because how can we expect the people who live so far from the Beit HaMikdash to really understand the workings of it and to understand 
what's getting dedicated to the beta to the beta mikdash to the kohanim? What do people keep for themselves? How can you swear off something that's already required by the Torah to be given to the kohanim? So this is where it says explicitly um, in Yehuda, those kinds of statements are mutar; they do not take effect. The oaths are not oaths, or the nedarim are not nedarim. In the Galil, they do work. You would prohibit something from yourself. She'ain and she Galil, because the people in the Galil again, they do not. Um, recognize they're not versed in the the um what do we call this the limitations one might impose upon oneself specifically or as dedications to the koanim okay and that's the Mishnah I mean it's an interesting Mishnah that it wants to give so many examples like often you know it seems to be more examples than your typical Mishnah and I also love that distinction between the people of Yehuda and the Galil, like the people of Yehuda are much, they have a very different understanding or more used to some of the terminology that has to do with temple life than the people of the Galil would. Right. I want to say it's like a chatty Mishnah, right? Like there's, there's more information. It's fleshing out all the details. It's giving us caveats. I feel like that's not standard fare for every Mishnah by any means. Yeah, that, that, I think that is a fair thing to say. Well, that's our top discussion for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Reverend Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about the stuff on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go.